Welcome to Sparrow Health Clinical Insights, where we cover the latest topics in the world of mental health and substance use disorder. We hope that this program will help you in your growth and help guide us toward achieving our mission of saving lives, instilling hope, and restoring relationships. And now, here is your host, Senior Vice President of Clinical Services, David Hayden. Hello, I'm David Hayden, your host. Welcome to the first podcast episode of Spiro Clinical Insights, where we will address the biggest questions and topics in the clinical world of mental health and substance use disorders. Today, we're going to be talking about the fentanyl and allergy puzzle and what many of you listening and our providers and teammates are asking in order to solve this very difficult puzzle. And this leads me to our guest who's going to help us with this puzzle, Dr. Darren Mangiacarni from Indianapolis. Darren, welcome and thanks for being our very first podcast guest. Thank you very much, David. I'm very grateful and very happy to be here to have this discussion with you guys. All right, well, we appreciate it. And, and one thing that, that uh, floats around a lot is, is we get a lot of people saying, hey, talk to Darren, talk to Dr. Mangiacarni. But tell us a little bit more about who you are. Who is uh, Darren Mangiacarni? All right, um, I'm from Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania. I went to medical school in Philadelphia. I'm an osteopathic physician. Uh, did a family medicine residency program and then went right from uh, residency into fellowship. I did an addiction medicine fellowship at, at the uh, Geisinger Health System. Uh, following that, I went down and I've been basically doing addiction work ever since. Um, I got a master's degree in public health policy along the way. I've been medical director at uh, inpatient treatment facilities and uh, I'm the regional medical director here at Spiro. Uh, I've been here at Spiro for the last two years now. All right, and I know that you're a distinguished fellow of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Tell us a little about how does one become a distinguished fellow? Well, um, there's only about 300 of us, you know, in the in the United States right now, and uh, ASAM is the American Society of Addiction Medicine. And in order to become a, a distinguished fellow, you have to you know, have service to the field. Uh, you have to uh, participate in leadership, uh, you know, in the chat chapter level and as well as the national level. I've been uh, president of the Indiana chapter of, of uh, ASAM. I've sat on the uh, um, the finance committee for the national organization. I've done lectures, uh, you know, at our at our national uh, speakers meeting, and uh, done a lot of service uh, for the organization. You know, I believe in uh, doing good work and taking care of people and, and doing things the right way. Yeah. Well, great. And tell us uh, a little about, you live here in Indianapolis with your family. Tell us a little bit about uh, you and your family and what do you all like to do for fun? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I've been married for, I don't know, 17, 18 years now. I don't even remember. <laughs> it's 2004 <laughs> I got married. Um, and I have two children. I've got a daughter who's 14 and uh, does competitive gymnastics. I've got a 12-year-old son who is on the autism spectrum. Uh, we have, um, you know, a lot of activities with the children, kind of keep us busy, you know, in our spare time. Don't really have time uh, to do much I enjoy personally. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks. I uh, appreciate you sharing that with us. hope everybody gets to know you a little bit better. Um, so let's get to the, the, the puzzle that we've asked you here to, to talk about, about fentanyl and the allergies. Um, we get a lot of questions lately about, uh, patients who are taking fentanyl it seems to be more and more uh, popular and readily available in our communities and our patients are taking it. And we've had a lot of our providers ask me, and I know some have asked you, uh, we don't have an instant test for that. So what do you recommend when there's not an instant way to test for fentanyl 
and the provider is debating, do I start on medication or do I not start on medication? Well, again, the things we need to be aware of about fentanyl is that, you know, pure fentanyl is 50 times more potent than, than heroin is. And uh, the amount of fentanyl that you need to overdose is not very much. And uh, our patients that come to us are at high risk for, for death due to drug overdose. So if you have a patient that's presenting to the office and you, know, you suspect fentanyl uh, use in them, I would not hesitate to get them started on medication-assisted treatment and get them induced on Suboxone. Fentanyl has a much shorter half-life uh, than, than heroin does or morphine does as well. So there's not much of a risk in you know, doing a standard induction for all these patients. Uh, the worrisome thing is that you don't treat them at that time and you, you want to get more information and uh, the patient would be at higher risk for uh, continued drug use and uh, an overdose death. You know, at Spiro, the, the most important thing we do is keep our patients alive. I mean, that, that's the first and foremost goal. If our patients die on us, you know, we've lost, and we've lost an opportunity to help them and their family. So goal number one is to keep them alive, and uh, one of the ways we keep them alive is through uh, medication-assisted treatment yeah. and not delaying it. Yeah. So when thinking about starting someone on medication, Darren, what do you, tell us a little bit about the, the, your assessment of the patient. What are you, what are you looking for? What are you asking? Um, what, are you, what are you trying to discover uh, to make that determination? Well, again, everything starts with a good history, and you want to you know, get a drug use history of a patient. You want to know how often they're using, what they're using, um, what's the route of administration. You want to know about uh, overdose history. You want to know about you know, any kind of mental health issues that you know, can be comorbid with their substance use. You know, we we're well aware that 50 to 60 percent of patients with substance use issues also have a comorbid uh, mental health problem as well. And you want to know about, you know, withdrawal symptoms that they're currently having or have been exposed to. You want to know about the social factors, like is there anybody else in their environment that are using drugs or, you know, are they working? What kind of support do they have at home? And you kind of formulate, you know, in your mind, you know, what's going on with this particular patient and you try to do what's right for them you know, when you meet with them. Yeah. Another thing that comes up, uh, that makes perfect sense to me too, but another thing that comes up from time to time is uh, patients who are, are using methadone and they're either uh, maybe transitioning from a methadone program to us or they're abusing methadone on the street. Okay. So what's your approach there? Yeah, you have to be a little bit careful when you, when you have a patient coming off of methadone because methadone has a very long half-life. You know, it can be described 72 to 96 hours. Um, and you can induce somebody who is on methadone, but you have to be very cautious. Not that they have methadone in their system, but how much methadone have they been taking? You know, in all honesty, if you can get a patient who's taking 30 milligrams of methadone or less, then you can safely try a 2 milligram induction. Um, we're going to get into the, to the mono product versus the, the dual product discussion later, but, you know, as far as inductions go, it's, it's, you're, you're safer to do a subutex induction on somebody who you know is using methadone. Um, but again, 30 milligrams is the magic number. If they're using more than 30 milligrams, then you're gonna, the patient's going to need a washout period of 24 to 48 hours before you would even attempt induction. Once they're at 30 or less, then you can safely do an induction. But these are patients that I would induce with uh, 2 milligram doses of subutex um, until they get stabilized and then make them a, a switch to the dual Suboxone product, you know, within a week or so. Yeah, let's talk about that washout period because I know yeah. you and I've talked before and, and one of the things that you've said, and I understand what you're saying, when you say they just got to treat the patient 
And one of the phrases that I always say to our providers is just go and be a doctor yeah. when they're doing that. And I don't know that everybody really understands uh, what that yeah. means. So when you say just treat the patient, what do you tell us a little bit about more what that means? Well, yeah, I mean, everything that we do, you know, in medicine, you know, here at Spiro at least, should be patient-centered and patient-focused. You know, are we doing right by the patient? You know, we try, you know, and then and these patients are marginalized, and, and unfortunately, they've had a lot of bad experience in the healthcare system. And, and so we want Spiro to be a welcoming environment, a place where they feel comfortable, you know, being themselves and telling you what's really going on without any fear of judgment or, 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 or anything going on with them. Uh, what we're trying to do here, you know, at Spiro is, is treat the patient you know, kindly, respectfully, and, and just making this a safe place for them to come to, because a lot of times, you know, they have chaotic, you know, family lives, home lives, work lives, and we, we want this to be uh, sort of an island of uh, sanity for them, you know, within the, you know, the sea of insanity that they, that they may be living in. Yeah, and I think, I think that's great. I think one of the things that, that I've seen before is, um, you know, they take an initial drug screen on a, on a patient and they show that to the provider and they're showing that they're positive for an, an opiate and the provider will say, tell them to come back in a couple of days when that opiate's out of their system, then I'll see them. And I have to say, no, go, you go tell them. You, mm-hmm. you be the doctor and tell them. Tell, tell us a little about what your approach is with, with that. Yeah, I mean, the message is always better received by the patient from their physician, you know, who, who their provider is. So if there's something in the patient's history that makes you feel like you can't prescribe for them, see them anyway and uh, talk to them about that. And if there's going to be a delay in treatment, maybe there's adjunctive medications that you can use to kind of help them with their withdrawal or with, uh, with anxiety or whatever. Maybe it's an insomnia, something that you can help them to bridge them to, to when you can start treating them. Um, but again, you know, um, I would not delay. The only thing I would delay an induction for would be somebody who's using more than 30 milligrams of methadone a day. Um, if there's you know, other opiates in their system, you can safely start an induction. You know, as long as you know you tell the patient, you know, you got to wait 12 hours before you start dosing, or you got to wait 24 hours before we start dosing. I mean, whatever that you know the history of that particular patient, but we should not be delaying you know, um, you know suboxone induction because again, we have to keep our patients alive and we have to start treating them. If we delay, if we delay care. You know, they may not come back. And um, one of the things about patients with substance use disorders, you know, sort of have to strike when the iron's hot. You know, when they're ready for treatment, when they present, that's when we have to start treatment. You know, we can't delay, we can't push them off, we can't, you know, make this experience coming to Spiro a negative so they don't want to come back. Because um, it's really, really difficult for a lot of them to, to finally get the muster up, to finally ask for help, and to finally get help. And use a small window where they could, you know, they could lose their motivation for, for change at any moment. So it's something you want to, you know, kind of address when they show up, when they're there in the office. Yeah, I, I can, you know, hear the passion in your voice, and not everybody's sitting here in front of you, and I can see the passion as you're as you're talking about that. What do you think makes that so challenging for for some providers in in starting uh, that medication or not? Um, I mean, I can't speak for any specific providers, but, you know, sometimes it could be a lack of comfort, uh, you know, lack of experience, um, a feeling like you don't have, you know, the, the administrative or the clinical support, you know, and I, and I want people to know that, you know, uh, you know while I'm here, um, I, I'm certainly going to be that support. You know, I want you to be comfortable, you know, if you have a clinical question to reach out to me. 
Um, you know, we don't want you know we don't want you to feel like you're on an island. We don't want you to feel like you're practicing by yourself without anybody else. Um, we want to support you. We want to help you. You know, better take care of the patients. Um, but again, you know, it's a comfort level, and comfort comes with experience and with more uh, seeing more patients. But you know, I, I'm I just going to encourage you, implore not to be gun shy about getting started. You know, helping somebody and getting started treatment. Um, and again, if it's one of those issues where you can't start medication today, hearing that from their doctor, you know, explaining them why you can't start treatment today, you know, and then getting them, you know, uh, helping the patient understand so they realize where you're coming from and, and you're not there. And because again, a lot of our patients have been marginalized by the medical community and they just have had bad experiences wherever they've gone. You know, they get treated like a like subhuman you know, when they come in, you know. Yeah. So it's just one of those things that uh, very passionate about, and, and again, and when this is not the subject of this talk, we can talk about this later. But you know, the the language that we use is so important. You know, we, we don't say a drug screen is clean or dirty. You know, we say you know it, it, it it's positive for this substance or it's negative for this substance. Yeah. You know, people aren't clean or dirty. Drug screens aren't clean or dirty. Yeah. You know, people are people, and it's just these things that we have to you know we have to improve upon. Yeah, you're 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 speaking to the choir here. I think uh, language is certainly very important, and we could do a a, a whole episode on that. We might do that at some point, but let, let's talk about fentanyl again. Sure. Uh, one of the common things that, that I get asked or it comes up in clinical review from time to time is that patients who are using methamphetamine, mm -hmm. and we know that a lot of times uh, the methamphetamine is mixed with fentanyl. The patient may not be intending to use fentanyl, but they do test positive uh, for opiate and it turns out to be fentanyl. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of times the question comes up, well, I'm going to lower their dose of buprenorphine because they're taking other opiates. How, how do you respond to that? Oh, I, I, would, I would advise against that. Um, you know, one of the things that we know that you know, meth, meth, methamphetamines are being you know, laced with, with fentanyl, um, and, and I believe the reason for that is they're trying to make it even more uh, addictive to patients so that when patients stop, historically, when patients start, stop using methamphetamines, they would you know, be fatigued, tired, depressed, need to sleep but there wasn't a physical withdrawal associated with it. And, and by the addition of, of fentanyl, we're seeing patients, um, and I've seen patients that have sworn up and down they've never touched an opiate, you know, in full-blown, you know, opioid withdrawal. And, and with the only drug that they would swear that they've ever used was methamphetamine. Um, you know, so, you know, I, I would not hold that against them. And again, if you're considering lowering a dose of, of Suboxone, I mean, you want to lower a dose of Suboxone if somebody's not taking their Suboxone, obviously. I mean, that makes perfect sense. But if they're struggling with other, you know, substance use, you know, the, the, the answer of lowering their Suboxone dose is almost like a punishment to the patient. You know, you don't lower somebody's insulin dose when, when, when somebody can't stop eating cookies. You know, yeah. you, you, you work with them, you, you, you increase the medication if necessary, increase the social supports around them. But... You don't want to you don't want to cut their medicine dose down, you know, based on you know something else that you find in a drug screen. Yeah, I, I've always find that really interesting when I talk to providers and they say, "Hey, um, you know, reducing their uh, buprenorphine when they're testing positive for methamphetamine makes them stop taking their methamphetamine." And I'm like, "Show me a patient that that happened," and people are, are unable to do that, and it, it makes me think that gosh, when they're 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 using the methamphetamine for some reason, and then when we lower their buprenorphine as a consequence for that, that they start to have cravings for opiates. Yeah. 
At this point, we have no FDA-approved medications for methamphetamine use uh, disorder. You know, there's a, there's a couple of things that have potential benefit that, that, that have been shown anecdotally to work, but we don't have any treatment for that. Um, and buprenorphine is not a treatment for methamphetamine use disorder. So expecting somebody with methamphetamine use disorder to just stop doing methamphetamine because we magically put them on Suboxone to treat their opioid use disorder is not the right way of thinking about this. Um, they're two separate illnesses with two separate, you know, treatment programs. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of counseling programs that work with methamphetamine, you know, including the Matrix program and contingency management works. Um, but we don't have a known FDA-approved medication, you know, and we can't punish our patients, you know, for continued meth use um, by cutting their Suboxone dose in half. I mean, that, that, that's not the, the, the appropriate way to approach that, that quite clinical question. Yeah. So it's, it's common that someone can be stable on buprenorphine. It's, a, it's helping them with their opiate use disorder. Uh, and still have other active substance use disorders. Yeah, uh, treating somebody's opioid use disorder with buprenorphine—that's what buprenorphine does—is it treats the opioid use disorder. It doesn't treat the smoking addiction. It doesn't treat marijuana use. It doesn't treat anything else. And expecting it to treat something else is is kind of looking at, at addiction in, in the wrong way, and not looking at it as the complex, you know, medical, psychosocial, you know, disease that you know that we know that it is. One follow-up question on uh, tapering, because that does come up mm -hmm. a lot. It doesn't have anything to do with fentanyl or anything like that, but uh, tapering buprenorphine. And uh, I love, one time you told me, and we actually put this in our, our policy, that any tapering of a patient should be done at the comfort level of the patient. We have a lot of providers that want to do that at certain intervals mm -hmm. um, because they think that's, that's what they're supposed to do. Maybe that's what their training was about. I'm not, I'm not really sure, but tell us a little about just normal tapering of a patient or adjusting the dose of a patient. Okay, yeah, um, we can certainly discuss that. There is no evidence-based uh, program or protocol that states after a certain period of time you lower somebody's dose. I mean, whether you know, historically people used to do that at six months or at a year, um, but it was it's really not an evidence-based strategy. Um, you keep patients on their suboxone or their buprenorphine dose as long as the patient's receiving benefit you know, from that and the patient wants to remain on it. Um, if the patient's not receiving benefit from the buprenorphine or they want to start weaning off their buprenorphine, you, you can do that. But you have to be care, careful when you do it and cautious and you, and you uh, decrease the dose at the patient's comfort level. So if somebody's on 16 milligrams a day of buprenorphine, you can start weaning them down. If you get them to 12 milligrams and they start having symptoms at that point, you don't keep lowering them. You, you, you either stabilize them at 12 or maybe you got to bump them back up to 14. Yeah. Um, but, but, but the patient's comfort and the patient experience has to be the center of this. And, and, and the, the thought of just pushing through the, the withdrawal and kind of making them you know, go down it's before the body's ready to do that and before the patient feels that they're ready to do that is not good practice. And that's invariably leads to either the patient lying to you and buying Suboxone on the street to supplement what you're giving them or could lead to a full-on relapse. And that's what we're trying to prevent here with our patients. Do you see them more frequently as you're adjusting dose? It depends, you know, on the patient and why we're adjusting the dose. I mean, um, sometimes, you know, for, for a patient I've seen for multiple years that we're weaning, you know, I can see them at their current, you know, time. Uh, if I don't have that level of comfort with them, you know, when we lower a dose, we're going to see them more often to try to uh, get ahead of symptoms and try to catch them before 
uh, that they start having any trouble before it gets too late. Mm-hmm. And again, when we're reading patients, you know, we always let them know, listen, if you get uncomfortable, you need to call the office, you need to come back in, you know, we can address this. I don't want you powering through this. I don't want you suffering. And sometimes, you know, you know, it, it's uh, Lusamira or it's uh, clonidine. You give them, you know, adjunctive medication to kind of help them at, uh, during that taper and during those uh, plateaus that they invariably will hit. Yeah. So it's all very, very patient-centered and you being in touch with them and being connected with that patient and having that relationship is really what makes that successful. Yeah, and, and again, when the patient trusts you and, and knows, and you've been working with the patient for a while, I mean, that, that means a lot, helping them walk through this. I mean, there's no, we're not going to put together a cookbook that tells you this is the formula that you follow and you do it exactly this way every way when you're, when you're withdrawing somebody off of buprenorphine because every patient is an individual and everybody has individual needs that are, that are different. So you can't just, you can give people guidelines about it in a general way of how to, how to wean somebody, but there's not going to be a prescriptive, this is exactly how you do it for every patient that comes in because every patient has a different story. All right. Well, Darren, this has been great. Let's switch over to our our next topic that is a hot topic right now in the spiral health land, and that is the uh, our new policy uh, related to uh, buprenorphine mono and buprenorphine with naloxone policy, uh, and and only using uh, the buprenorphine mono for someone who is has a documented uh, allergy to it, um, or have, we have documentation that they are in fact pregnant. So tell us a little bit about your thoughts around that new policy. Yeah, this is a very important policy, you know, for us as providers and for us as an organization. Uh, we have to be very, you know, cognizant of, of how we prescribe and who we prescribe to. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, diversion is a risk for, you know, the patient population that we serve. And uh, plain buprenorphine monoproduct has a much, much higher street value than Suboxone. Uh, in, here in Indianapolis, I, I can speak of that, and, and an 8 milligram Subutex pill goes for about 45 or $50 a pill, whereas uh, an 8 slash 2 milligram Suboxone goes for about 15 or $20. Mm-hmm. So we have to be you know, very cognizant about how we're you know, prescribing and why we're prescribing. And uh, you know, the, with pregnant women, you know, um, you know, buprenorphine has been you know, shown to be safe uh, during pregnancy. Um, my assumption is that buprenorphine naloxone is also safe for pregnancy, but um, we aren't doing any controlled studies on pregnant women uh, with uh, buprenorphine versus buprenorphine with naloxone to find that answer out. Um, so it's a very safe thing to, to keep a pregnant woman on sub- subutex during her pregnancy. And uh, there's really not a lot of naloxone secreted in breast milk. So after delivery, you can safely, you know, uh, the first or second visit after delivery, you can safely switch the patient back uh, to buprenorphine naloxone. Yeah, so part of what we're trying to get with the policy, and, and tell me what you think about this, is that um, you know that the, 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 every patient gets the right medication for them, and that we're taking that good history and gathering that information. I know that when we did some chart reviews, we had patients that were uh, on Subutex because they had an allergy, and and what it was is they reported having an allergy. There was no proof that allergies there, and and that leads to a, a greater opportunity for diversion. So, uh, right, yeah, and, and that's important. I mean, when we historically, you know, a patient could say they have an allergy to uh, suboxone, and uh, that allergy could be you know, nausea or dry mouth or, or some other kind of symptom. It's not a true allergy, and uh, you know, patient gets put on Subutex at some point in the game get switched providers, switch clinic locations, um, 
switch organizations even, and they just continue to stay on Subutex because they've been on Subutex for five or six years. Um, other patients, you know, were put on Subutex in the past due to cost concerns with uh, it being cheaper out-of-pocket uh, cost than Suboxone. Um, but with the advent of a lot of our patients you know, getting health insurance, that, that, that's not as big of an issue anymore. Um, but again, you know, it's important to take a good history and to take good care of the patient. And, uh, you know, we really want you to observe, uh, you know, an anaphylactoid type reaction, you know, for patients uh, to have them uh, continue on Subutex. Now, obviously, nobody wants to have an anaphylaxis reaction, you know, in the office. Um, we're going to have epinephrine uh, available in all of our locations and uh, encourage our patients, you know, to um, make the switch on their own uh, when it's clinically appropriate for them. Well, Darren, this has been really helpful, and as we wrap it up, uh, what's your one final piece of advice for our listeners out there around this fentanyl and allergy uh, puzzle and dosing and, and the things that we've talked about? What's the one thing that they should remember, uh, or what one real action should our listeners take from this podcast? You know, the, the most important thing I would say is that, you know, be a doctor, you know, and take care of, of your patients, you know. Um, we are the we are the physician. We are the the head of the healthcare team here, even at Spiro, and it's our responsibility to uh, make sure that the patient is being treated appropriately, you know, by uh, by us, and that they're getting the appropriate counseling and, and recovery support services. So I would encourage you uh, to have those conversations, those tough conversations with your patients, and not. Um, rely on another staff member um, or even a therapist to, to, to do that. You know, as the doctors, you know, our patients trust us and uh, you know, we have to use that, you know, in a way that you know, it's going to be good for the patient. All right. Well, thank you again, Darren, for being our very first guest on Spiro Clinical Insights. I hope you had fun uh, and I'm sure that we'll have you back for future episodes. This is David Hayden, your host and Senior Vice President of Clinical Services. Thank you for listening, and remember to be kind, be consistent, and be predictable. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Sparrow Health Clinical Insights. Join us next time as we continue to talk about topics that help guide us toward achieving our mission of saving lives, instilling hope, and restoring relationships.